right, I'm back. I was going to say, do I say good morning, even though I was already on stage? Or would it be rude to have not have said it before? So there's a great dilemma while that bumper was playing in my brain. Uh, if you're new, we're jumping, we're going through the book of Philippians, and just some background information about it to get you caught up. Uh, the book of Philippians is actually a letter written by a leader in the early church named Paul the Apostle. He's writing roughly around the early 60s AD, so give or take 30 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's writing to Christians who are in a city called Philippi, hence the book of Philippians. Now, he is currently in prison as he's writing this letter because of the message that he has been proclaiming. I just want to review briefly just how radical that message was in this first century Greco-Roman context. Because Paul is going around the Roman Empire saying that a crucified Jewish man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth is the world's true Lord. He himself is King of kings and Lord of lords and death could not contain him, but he rose in power and glory on the third day. So there's this gospel good news message about what Jesus has done and is bringing peace to the world. Simultaneous to that, there is a kind of Roman gospel, a Roman good news. See, Caesar was called Lord in the first century context. The Greek word was kurios, the same word that's used for the Lord Jesus. So Caesar and Rome has a Lord and a king. And it was said that he is bringing about peace and salvation to the entire world, namely through the Latin word Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so you have these two conflicting messages about Rome and Caesar and the power and peace that they bring, and then there's the crucified one, who is crucified under the authority of Pontius Pilate, under the authority of the Roman Empire. Nevertheless, the claim is that that crucified one, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, is indeed the world's true Lord. Now, Paul has been writing to Christians in a Roman colony named Philippi. We're going to pick up today in chapter 3. Now, quick warning, um, right after this verse, there is going to be a massive tonal change. Like, this is going to talk about rejoicing and having joy, and it's going to set you up to think like, oh, this is a sermon where it's going to be about, like, joy and happiness and all the fluffy things and, like, happy. Like, it's going to change. The tone's going to switch instantly, like zero to 100. So that's just the preface as we read the first verse. Okay, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and is safe for you. So before we get to the tonal shift, just, just a brief point on this. Paul is in prison. He could be killed. He could face extreme punishment, torture. Nevertheless, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And that phrase is important. It's not an empty rejoice. It's not pretending to be happy all of the time, like everything's always cool. It's not pretending as if the world is... is filled with happiness and everything is okay out there and in my personal life, everything's okay. Paul's command is to rejoice in the Lord. In other words, independent of whatever external circumstances might be going on in the world or in your life, the Christian always has a reason to rejoice because a Christian is fundamentally an always and forever good news person. Even if everything is falling apart, the Christian still has a piece of good news, namely, the victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death. So the key is not pretending like everything's cool or there's no problems in the world. The principle is rejoicing in the Lord what he has done independent and sometimes in spite of external circumstances. Paul says rejoice. But now here's the shift. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You feel that? Rejoice always in the Lord. Look out. 
there's dogs and evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh. Verse three, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so we're gonna get to these, these warning statements, this look out, look out, look out. But before we get to those statements, we have to do some, excuse me, some discussion on circumcision because the whole argument taking place in chapter three begins with a debate about circumcision. So what is What is the circumcision that Paul is referring to? In the Hebrew scriptures, way back at the beginning of the Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 17, God commands Abraham and thus his people to circumcise their their male boys uh, on the eighth day. Now, this is incredibly important. Circumcision for Abraham and his people was a sign of the covenant. That's explicitly stated in the 17th 17 chapter of Genesis. It's a sign of the covenant. Now, this is important because it's not as if they believed that circumcision was the act that was saving the individual, justifying the individual, or making someone a part of the people and family of God. Faithful Jews in the Old Testament believed that God was gracious to them. God chose Abraham from nowhere. He was a pagan worshiping false gods and God gave him grace and then gave him this sign of the covenant. Likewise, if you were to ask an Israelite in the Old Testament, well, why are you the people of God? They wouldn't say, well, because I got circumcised, that made me a part of the people of God. They would say, well, Moses taught us that God chose us because we're the, he chose us when we were the least among the nations. We didn't have anything to be, to be like spectacular or just differentiate us from the rest of the nations, but God graciously brought us in and then gives us the sign of the covenant. Now that kind of may be a little bit confusing, but let me illustrate it with a wedding. When, when a wedding takes place, there is an exchanging of rings. Now, if for some reason, let's say, and I'm sorry if this has happened to you, but like the best man, he's, you know, he's not on top of things. He forgets the ring. Now, you do the wedding and the ceremony happens and you're still married. But what you want to do is, as soon as that best man could get that wedding ring, the sign or the symbol of the covenant of marriage, you want that dude to get it so you can do the exchanging of the rings. So the ring doesn't make the marriage, but the ring is an external sign that there has been a marriage. So in one sense, you can say, well, the ring isn't all that important. But in another sense, the ring is super important. It's super important. It's incredibly important. Why? Because you can see that in one sense, you can take off a wedding ring, and in one sense, maybe it may not be a big deal because you're taking it off, you're cleaning it or something like that but you can also take the wedding ring off to communicate that you are no longer honoring the covenant. So let's say five years after that marriage date, that man um, is going to be unfaithful to his bride and he's out away on business and he's gonna try to seek out um, a woman to be with. He takes off his wedding ring. Now in that instant, in that case, the taking off of the sign of the covenant is a very big deal. It's not like, oh, it's no big deal. So you see this. In one sense, the wedding ring doesn't make the wedding. But in another sense, the removal of that wedding ring is a very big deal. So this is what's taking place in Paul's day. There are people who have come to know Jesus. And they are saying that in order to be a part of the family of God, 
you must be circumcised. You aren't saved, you aren't justified, you are not a part of the family of God until you submit to circumcision. Now for Paul, this is a huge deal because Paul's gospel is one that says because of the work of Christ, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who belong to the people of God and within the people of God, there is Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. So if you make the front door into the family of God, circumcision, you are essentially saying that even if you have faith in Christ, you aren't a full member of the family of God until you do this circumcision thing. It's an external work that functions as the front door into the people of God. And Paul's going, this is making circumcision the entry point into salvation. And that's not the way this works. The family of God will be composed of people who put their faith in Christ. And he's, we're going to come back to this because he's going to argue that later. But you have to have a little bit of that understanding before we go into the rest of the argument. So Paul himself is a Jewish Christian. He himself is circumcised. But now he's aware that there's these teachers who are coming in and going to his churches and finding Gentile Christians and telling them, you're not really right before God. You need to submit to circumcision for God to accept you. And circumcision is not the grounds of salvation. God's grace received through faith is. And so Paul sees this as a big, big, big deal. And so he writes of these teachers, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, on your screen is, is the Greek of those three statements. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, and look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm not just doing this to do some super nerdy, geeky Greek New Testament thing. Trust me, there's, there's payoff to this, so, so stick with me. Paul, Paul's rhetoric at this point is brilliant. There is layers upon layers of what he's doing in just a couple sentences to communicate his point. Each, each time you hear the word look out, look out, look out, it's the Greek word blepete. So it's blepete for the dogs, blepete for the evildoers, blepete for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, blepete, along with all of the other syllables in this sentence, are structured after a cacophonous pattern. A, a, a cacophony is something where something in and of itself sounds harsh. So there's um, cacophonous letters, letters that just sound harsh as you hear them. So B's and T's and G's and C's and several other letters, they just sort of have a harshness spoken, just the very, just speaking them, you can kind of feel it. So you can see blepete has this. There's B's, there's P's, there's T. Now, for those of you who know Spanish, uh, this will come easier to understand because you know there are certain words that like embedded into the word is the sound of warning or emergency. So for example, mom's upset and she goes, callete, callete, or calmate. It, it, the, the, the harshness is embedded, embedded into the pronunciation of the letter. And this happens in all languages, and it B's, P's, T's, K sounds, G sounds, they're all there. Now, why is all of that important? Like, why? Like, okay, what's that important? Because Paul structures this warning with nothing but cacophonous sounding 
syllables. And so that it goes from like, hey, rejoice in the Lord to... Now, the reason why that is extraordinarily important is because this letter was meant to be read out loud. Like if if, if you received a letter in the mail, how would you read it? In your head. Because modern people read in their head. Ancient people always read out loud. Always. Pretty much universally, always, ancient people read out loud. There's exceptions, but it's, it's, it's a rare exception. So this letter of the, to the church of Philippi would have been received. Probably the leader in that church would have picked a reader, someone who was good at reading, who was literate. And then this letter would be spoken out loud to the congregation in one sitting. So everyone would hear this at the same time. They'd hear it out loud. And so... There's this threefold warning, blepete. And that can mean like look out to watch out, or maybe a better translation is beware. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. And so someone would have went up on a Sunday morning. We've received a letter from Paul. Look, chapter three begins, rejoice in the Lord always. And then the shift. Plepete tus kunas, plepete tus kaukus ergatas, plepete tein katatomain. Now, you don't, you don't know what I said, but it sounded mean, right? It sounded mean. It sounds harsh. You know, when you see people like arguing in another language, you don't speak it, but you're, it ain't, it ain't good, man. It ain't good. So, he structures the sentence and, and patterns his words so that you feel the intensity. Watch out, look out, beware. Beware of, first, the dogs. Harsh words, right? Beware of the dogs. He's talking about other people. His rhetoric is sharp here. Now, there's work we need to do at this point because um, modern people, when we picture dogs, we, we, we typically love dogs. And if we don't love dogs, we're like, oh, I don't mind them, but I'm a cat person. And, and you can talk about, we like cats, we like dogs, but like, for instance, if I were to say, look, why don't you bring that puppy in the room right now? And I actually had a cute puppy. Like, Sam's in the back. Sam, go ahead and bring the puppy we brought. I'm gonna show you. There's no puppy, I'm just kidding. <laughs> now, there are some of you who went, oh, you wanted to see the cute little puppy, right? Because we're modern people, we love puppies. To a first century Jewish person, a dog is an unclean animal. And in the the Greco-Roman world, dogs primarily served as a utility, like a guard dog or a watchdog. They had some function, or they're just an unclean animal that's roaming around. It's like a dog that's been roaming around, and the reason why Jews consider them unclean, because a dog just eats garbage off the ground. You know, the garbage that's on the ground could have had, had pig fat on it, and the dog would just eat it. For a Jewish person, it's unclean. You can't trust a dog to not eat unclean things. So dogs are just generally unclean. So you have to switch like your mind because when Paul says, watch out for the dogs, it doesn't hit you the way it ought to. Because when you picture dog, you picture your Skippy, your pet, Skittles, your little, you know, so all these cute little animals that you love. So I need to like reorient yourself to when you picture a dog, you have to picture an unclean, filthy animal. You got a picture like, oh, man. Uh, this, this picture, by the way, just for... Some of you are so brainwashed, you're still going, he's so cute. It's like, no, man, so cute. Um, 
This act dog actually won the ugliest dog in the world contest, which is held in Petaluma, California. So if you're looking for like an extra stop on your vacation, it's right here in California. You go to the ugliest dog contest. Uh, but you need to picture something different. You, do, why, how do you say, ah? Did you hear that? I show these stairs. Oh. So, blepetetus uh, kunas, beware of the dog, the filthy, unclean animal. Which, okay, check out the rhetoric. It's so good again because these false teachers are telling Jewish people, I'm telling Gentiles, you're not saved, you're not a part of the people of God. To be clean, to be whole, to be made right before God, you need to be circumcised. And Paul is saying, the very people who are promising you that you can be clean and whole and right, they themselves are unclean. He calls them dogs, which is harsh in the historical context. The next thing he says to, again, is blepete, that's that watch out, look out, beware of the evil doers, the evil workers, the evil workers. These false teachers are saying you need not just faith in Christ, but you need the added good work of circumcision in order to be a part of the family of God. So you need this good work. And what Paul is saying is these people say you need this good work, but they themselves are workers of evil. So you feel like they, they promise to make you whole and clean, but they themselves are unclean. They promise a good work, but they themselves are evil workers. And then the last one, Look out for the mutilators. They want you to be circumcised, and he's saying it's actually not circumcision that you will receive, it's mutilation. Now, this is important to note. Paul himself is a faithful Jewish man. He himself was circumcised on the eighth day. We'll get to that in a little bit. So Paul is not knocking circumcision in and of itself. He's knocking it as if it's the means by which one can be saved. And so he says they're making it out to be that. So look out for the katatomain, the mutilators. Now again, Paul's crafting his words with precision here because the Greek word for circumcision is peritome. And he's saying they're not going to peritome you, they're going to katatomain you. So there's a play on words. And katatomain means mutilators cutting off or cutting into pieces. Peritome is to cut around. That's the idea of circumcision. So they're saying it's just a peritome, but they're going to katatomain you. So look out for the dogs. Watch out for the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Verse three, this is fascinating. He says, we are the circumcision. Who's the we? Well, obviously it includes Paul. And Paul is a Jewish man who obeyed Torah, who was circumcised. So the we are the family of God includes Paul, a circumcised Jewish man, but who's receiving the letter in Philippi? Gentile converts to the Christian faith, people who are not circumcised. So Paul is saying, whether it's me who is circumcised or you who is not circumcised, circumcision is not the entryway into the people of God. Faith is, and he'll get to that in a moment. Now, you might be saying, how can Paul just like make up this whole new category of like, it doesn't really matter uh, to be in the family of God. Uncircumcised or circumcised doesn't matter. He isn't just making this up. Paul has been saturated in the Hebrew scriptures since he was a young boy. He knows them inside and out. 
And he knows that within the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, there is a category, something called circumcision of the heart. And the Bible speaks of circumcision of the heart being incredibly important. And you see circumcision of the heart in the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. So already in the Old Testament, God was upset with people for thinking they're right with God just because they were circumcised. And already the Old Testament is pointing forward to some type of circumcision of the heart for the people of God. And so Paul tells uncircumcised Gentile believers, we are the circumcision and we worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh, meaning it's not by human achievement. It's not my by ethnicity. It's not by my circumcision that makes me stand in right standing before God. It's not based upon human accomplishment. Therefore, we put no confidence in the flesh. Then he moves on from that and says this. This is, this is awesome. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Okay, so Paul... He, the last slide, he ends by, by saying, we don't put confidence in the flesh. It's not by human achievement. But since you care so much about that, since you're putting all this weight and emphasis on works of the flesh and human accomplishment and achievement, let's play that game. And he's like, what's up? Here's my resume. You want to play this game of who's best according to obedience to Torah? Let's go. You want to hear my credentials? This is me. I have every reason to put confidence in the flesh. I was circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the flesh, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So it's sort of like, you know, Paul steps up. What's up? You, you, want, you want to use that scorecard? If we use that scorecard, I'm the best. I'm better than all of you. Now, let's walk through these one by one because they're important. Paul first says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why is that important? Because these teachers are trying to get Gentile converts to Christianity to be circumcised. And likely, they themselves weren't circumcised on the eighth day because they're new converts. So Paul is saying, you're over here talking about circumcision as adults. If you were truly righteous and truly a part of the people of God, your parents would have obeyed the scriptures and you would have been circumcised like me on the eighth day. Hmm. Then he says, I'm of the people of Israel. I am ethnically Jewish. And I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Why is this important? Because in the first century world, not every Jewish person could trace their genealogy far back enough to know exactly what one of the 12 tribes of Israel they belonged to. Long story short is, Israel was only united as a kingdom for a very short time. After the reign of Solomon, there's a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom is destroyed in 586 by the Babylonians, and the survivors are brought into exile. So picture destruction and exile and people scattering in order to survive. And because of that, you still know that you're Jewish and you're a part of Israel, but you don't know like what tribe you belong to. You don't have the, the genealogies all mapped out. Nevertheless, Paul's like, 
No, you, you want to know how Jewish I am? We kept the records. I not only know I'm Jewish, I know I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's how much I know. Furthermore, there's some benefits and like street cred you get from being a part of the tribe of Benjamin. Because who gave Israel their first king? The tribe of Benjamin. What tribe never rebelled against King David? Benjamin. If you know the story of how Israel came about as a nation, Jacob, who's renamed Israel, has 12 sons. And who's the beloved son that is cherished above the other brothers? Benjamin. Benjamin, Benjamin, Benjamin. It's always Benjamin. And the holy city itself, Jerusalem, is in the territory that was given to Benjamin. So, bro, I'm not just Jewish, he says. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. His, his next credential is going to talk about him being a Pharisee, and the reason why that's important for him being a Hebrew of Hebrews is although he was Saul of Tarsus, he became a Pharisee, which meant he would go to the Holy Land, he would go to Jerusalem, and he would be studying and speaking the scriptures in the language of his people. Most Jews throughout the empire were reading a Greek translation of it. He's like, I'm, I read and speak the scriptures in the language of our people. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees have a long, complicated history, but at least in the time of the first century, this is a group that is radically committed to Torah obedience. As always, Torah is the first five books of the Bible. There's 613 laws in there. So the Pharisees were committed to obeying 613 laws found in the scriptures. And they're gonna be committed to them, trying to be obedient to them at every point of their life. And Paul says, that's me. I was one of those guys. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So before Paul's a Christian, he's a Pharisee, and he hears the Christian message, and at the time thinks that that's false teaching. And he doesn't just sit back and be lazy and like, well, you know, there's some Pharisees and some false teachers out there. No. He looks to the Hebrew scriptures and see, what, what do people do when enemies challenge the faith? What did David do to Goliath? What did the great kings do to the enemies of old? So he becomes a persecutor of the church. And then lastly, he goes, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You know those 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible? As to that, I'm blameless. I'm blameless. There's some confusion here for the modern reader, the modern Christian, because... We, we might be tempted to think that Paul is saying, as to the commands of the law, I am sinless. Like he's making a statement that he's perfect and he's never sinned. And you can see why you might say that. He's saying he's blameless. That's not what, what a first century Jewish person would have meant. They would have meant that they did their best to obey all of the law. And if they messed up, the law itself because of the sacrificial system, had the means and mechanism by which you can receive the pronouncement of forgiveness and be in right standing before God. So if Paul ever messed up, there was a whole sacrificial system there to make sure things were right. So his argument is like, under the law, I'm blameless. So you guys, you wanna bring this human achievement stuff, this circumcision stuff? I'm better than, you guys can't even compare. And almost like, just to rub it in even more, just to show you, he's like, do you want to know how Jewish I am? 
how faithful I am to the customs of our people. I gave you a list of all my credentials. Now count the credentials. Circumcision on the eighth day, people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, persecutor of the church, under the law, blameless. I listed seven things because I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I always think in patterns of seven. He's like, step back, man. Don't come at me, man. Even my list comes out in seven. So he's like, if you're going to play this game, I'm the best. So come at me. Picture like, um, like a playground and there's some third graders playing basketball, you know? And there's one third grader who's exceptional. He's better than all the other third graders. He can make layups. Like the other kids don't even make layups yet. And he's shooting from the free throw line, nothing but net. And he's like, this kid is good. He thinks he's, he thinks he's really good. But he's only good when he compares himself to other third graders. Because you better believe like some junior higher is going to come. Got room for one more? And then this junior higher just schools this dude, you know? And then go up. The junior higher thinks he's great at basketball, and then there's a varsity basketball player from the high school team. And what does he do? Every time that junior higher puts up a shot, get out of here. Go home. This is my court. This is my school. And of course, you just go up the ladder, right? So for some of you who played basketball, like in open gyms, there was always like some really good, good guys who were better than everyone else. You're like, man, these guys are good. But you know that like if a 55-year-old retired NBA player came, he would just destroy these guys. You know, halfway through, you're just like, dude, we can't even get up a shot on this guy. He's like, I've been playing left-handed the whole time, bro. I'm about to switch over. I'm right-handed. <laughs> because it's the standard by which you're comparing yourself to, right? And so Paul's going, you guys think you're, you're special. Under the old system, under that currency, if you're using that currency, you don't even compare to what I have. Nevertheless, I will not put my confidence in human achievement. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So he's like, in that currency, under that scorecard, in that system, I had it all. Nevertheless, I counted all as loss to gain the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, these terms of, of gain and loss, they're business terms. In, in, in Greek, so you're, you're almost meant to picture like accounting, like an accounting book where it's like, I had all this stuff I was gaining, but you know what? I don't care. I don't care. Mark it down as loss. It's a loss to me compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything other that was over here that I could get from the world, I am going to count as rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Now, some of you might've heard this before, uh, it's often brought up, and it's true, that the word for rubbish here is a Greek word, skubalon, and uh, it means something like garbage, rubbish, or dung. So when you picture this word, it, it's, it's like dung or something garbage on the floor that if you were to see on the, the floor, you go like, don't touch that. Don't touch that, man. Walk by it. Everything Paul could gain is like garbage on the floor that you don't even want to touch compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Interesting note, there's a, there's a great translation 
written in 1383 by one of the first Protestant reformers, like the proto-reformer, John Wycliffe. And in his English translation, he translated the word rubbish as turd, which is a great translation. And he, of course, because he was writing 1383 in English, was influenced by the old English word turdum, which was taken from the proto-Germanic word turda. That's all true, by the way. So if you learned anything, know the proto-Germanic word for turd is turda. You can sound very sophisticated. Um, But it's actually a great translation. Do you see this? Please don't let that be the only thing you take away from today. Um, He gets it right. It's like a turd on the ground. It's garbage. It's refuse. It's dung. You don't want anything to do with it. And so Paul, like, he looks... You have to picture this. Among his people, he was the best you could be. If if you were a a father and you had a young boy, you would point to Paul. Son, you you should be like Paul. Paul is the pride of his people, circumcised on the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous, a Pharisee, obedient to Torah. Everything that the world could give him, everything, all the the praise and accolades that were there from his people, the pride and the work that he had done. Paul looks at that and he sees option number two and there's one thing there. There's everything the world can offer stacked up and then over here, one thing and that one thing is Christ alone. And Paul says, give me Christ alone compared to him, that is dung, it's garbage, it's rubbish. Give me Christ. It's very powerful, very powerful. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, how does he gain Christ? Because if it's not circumcision or human achievement, how does one get to be a part of the family and people of God? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So look at a couple things. He says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's easy just to skip over, but think about this for a second. Paul is saying that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are found in him. We often emphasize, which is a true point, that Christ is in us. Christ is in us. But Paul actually emphasizes the other side of the coin more than he does the other, and both are true, but what he emphasizes is the fact that Yes, Christ is in you, but you are in Christ. Paul says, if you want to find me, you can find me in Christ. And what does that even mean? Paul is saying that he is in Christ because he is now in the household of God. He has been brought into the family and the people of God. He's in the household of God. He's a part of the family. I'm in Christ. And how did that happen? How can Paul be part of the family of God. He doesn't list his circumcision, him being a Hebrew of Hebrews, his obedience to Torah. He doesn't list that. I am found in Christ. How? Why? Because 
I have not have a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Incredibly important. It's not because of a righteousness inside of me. The reason why I'm in the household of God is there's a righteousness outside of myself. There's a righteousness not of my own. So it wasn't like, I just followed my good heart and I saw the spark of goodness in my inward being and I followed the trail and I found the Lord. Like that's not how you come to Christ. It's not inside of you. The answer isn't deep down in the goodness of your nature. Paul is saying there's an external foreign thing that has been given to me. It is a righteousness not of my own that I didn't earn from the law. Well, then how did you get it, Paul? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. How did I get into the family of God? How am am I accepted? Because God was gracious and I received his grace through faith. Faith is the mechanism by which you receive the grace of God. And it depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So the front door into Acceptance before God is not circumcision or whatever human achievement you think you might have stacked up. Your acceptance before God is based upon his grace, which is freely given and received by faith. So think of it like this. The works of the law aren't bad. They were good. Like Paul isn't ashamed of his obedience to Torah. Those are all good things. But it's like a currency, And the currency has value, but that currency isn't the type of currency that you need to be accepted by God. Like, you've sinned and you got a debt, and this currency isn't the type of currency that can pay that bill. More importantly, you could never acquire enough of that type of currency to ever pay off the debt that you've acquired. And so you can have all of this human achievement building up this currency that may be valued for other things, but to get you acceptance before God, that's not going to... That's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. And so in Paul's day, people were going around and saying, well, you need this and you need this and you need this before God will make you a part of his people. Now, we won't struggle with that temptation for the most part because there's not people, you know, there's not new converts going around trying to convince adult men to truly be accepted by God, you need to get circumcised. Like that's not a common temptation in the modern world. But you can really be tempted to think that the work of your hands and your own human achievement is the currency that's getting you into heaven. So Paul lists, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee as to the law, blameless. You're not going to do that, but you could be tempted to be like, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good person, good family, done all kinds of good things in my life. I help old ladies cross the street. I befriend those ugly dogs. I feed them, I take them in. You know, I got a degree. I, went to, I got a master's degree from Stanford. I've done a lot. My kids are great. They're all married. They're doing great. You know, I even wrote some books. I even wrote some books and they've helped a lot of people. And Paul is saying, keep stacking it, man. That currency cannot buy you acceptance of God. 
It doesn't make you a part of the people of God. Well, no, no, let me tell you how much more I got, man. I'm kind of rich in this area of good works. I wrote these books, made a lot of technological advances. I want a Nobel Peace Prize. And Paul is still going to say, it's not good enough. You cannot pay that debt. There's only one person who holds that currency and only one person who can pay that debt. And this is precisely why Christ came and he came to pay it in full and he has paid it in full. And it's not the works of human achievement that justify you before God, but it's the work of Christ that justifies you and it's grace freely offered and it can be received through faith. That is the grounds and the front door into the household of God. And what's really good news about that is that means you can just come as you are type you know, churches like to say, come as you are. But it, like, as far as the gospel, that's true. When you come to Christ, you don't come saying, I know you just can't help but love me, Lord. Look at all the good things I've done. You have a debt, you can't pay it. Here you go, son. Here you go, daughter. It's my joy to pay this for you. But you have to receive it by faith. And then you can walk into the front door and be an adopted son or daughter of Jesus. That's how this works. That's, that's Paul's inner logic. Now, because of that, once you walk into the household, it doesn't mean that you just, you know, it's not by human achievement or good work that saves, so I'm not going to worry about doing any good works or growing in Christ or becoming more like Christ. No, it's all the more reason that you pursue Jesus. So you realize your works have not been the mechanism by which you're accepted. But now that you have been accepted, you want to do good in this world. You want to do right. You've been put in the household of God and now you realize there's chores, there's family responsibilities, there's family duty within the house of God. And you commit yourself to those things. And that's what Paul turns to as he closes. He says, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So Paul says, I've been brought in not because of a righteousness of my own, but by the righteousness of Christ. I've received it through faith. But now that I'm in the household of God, I'm not gonna be lazy. I'm not just gonna kick back and wait till I die or the second coming. I'm gonna reach forward because I want more of him. I want to pursue him all the more. I wanna be like Christ all the more. And so out of that, good works flow. So you're in the house, but now there's chores. There's family responsibilities. And so what Paul would have us do is he would say a Christian is one who has come to the household of God freely by his grace, but now we pursue Christ all the more precisely because he pursued us. And we strive to the goal. We want to be more like Christ. And so you can begin to think of it like this, like, a, like on a practical level. What are the things that stir your affection to Christ? And what are the things that draw you away from him? And what you want to do is do more of those stuff that push you forward in the race. And then you want to remove some of the things that are drawing you away. And so then lastly, Paul closes with a warning. He kind of gets back to his old tone. Remember, 
there's all, there's been all this good stuff in the middle, but the way it began was like, watch out for the dogs, watch out for this. He, he kind of bookends and he gets back to that tone. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And then, for many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he's like, watch out, beware. Because you've seen what happens to these false teachers. They've gone the way of destruction. But you remember, even though you're a citizen of Philippi, a citizen of a Roman colony, you are also a citizen of heaven. So know who you are. Know to whom you belong. And know your identity. So Paul would encourage the Philippians, who do you belong to? You belong to Jesus. You are in him. He has brought you in. What is your, your identity? You're a child of God. And how were you made a child of God? By the grace of God. God brings you in, not because of all the great stuff you've done, but because he loves you. And out of that, you obey the household rules. And so briefly, let's go back to just that kind of real practical step. Like think right now, what are the things that are drawing you towards Christ in life? And what are the things that pull you away? And this is real practical. Like you can even after church, get out a piece of paper and write down things that stir your affections, that draw you to him, that help you pursue him. Do more of that stuff. And then what are the things that are on the other end that are pulling you away? Like think real practical. So like things that stir your affections towards Christ. Um, for me, this has always been the case. Um, Music can do this. Have you ever been listening to like a really good song and all of a sudden out of nowhere, like you're just driving and then like a, a hook hits you, a little tear starts to come. Thank you, Lord. It's, it's like, so sometimes music can stir your affections in the right direction. For some of you, it's like going on hikes, right? You're like, I just go on these hikes, like a two, three mile, four mile hike and I'm just praying. I'm just talking to God the whole time. And it's, it's, it restores my soul. It draws me to him. So be incredibly practical at this point. Like, what are the things that are making you pursue him? Because the rest, everything else this world has to offer is rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. And then likewise, on the opposite, and write down the things that are taking you away, that draw your attention other places. One of the things that we talk about on the pastoral staff is whenever people come to us and be like, you know, I really think I need to stop doing this or I need to give up this, it takes my eyes off the Lord. When you start talking like that, it seems like it's like, I don't know if I could do this. It's very difficult. I really like blah, blah, blah. And then you talk to that person five years later. And like, as a pastoral staff, we've never found somebody who goes, you know, pastor, when I got rid of that thing that was keeping me from Christ, that was a bad idea. I really loved it. My life was so much better with it. Every time, you, you, and if you've done this, you know this. Like you look back five years ago, dude, I was dumb. I put so much weight and worth in this thing. And it was holding me back from running the race. 
And so what we do is we say we want more of the things that draw us to Christ and we want to do less of the things that are drawing us away because we have to remember the image. Picture Paul. All of the things this world can offer, they're stacked up. The prestige and pride of his people. He was it. You couldn't get any better than he's like, all of that, all the world can offer me was rubbish compared to knowing the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Like, there's no comparison. And it's not like, oh, that's gonna hurt. Oh, but Jesus is a little better. It's like, are you kidding me? This is nothing compared to Christ. It's rubbish. I told you how that meant like dung or garbage on the ground. One of the most common usages for that word in the time of Paul was the scraps or leftover garbage that you fed to the... All of this is food for the dogs. And I get Christ. So I want to pursue him all the more. I want to know him all the more. I want to serve him all the more. So what can you do that stirs your affections to him? And what are the things that you need to eliminate? I read a book about 10 years ago, and there was a a few lines in it that stood out, and we could read them as we transition to communion. Yes, I am in Christ. Yes, I have found him. Yes, he's found me. Yes, I belong to him. Yes, I have him. But I am going for more of him. And I will keep reaching for him till the day I die or he comes again. Is this not the Christian life? I found him, or maybe better put, he found me. And when I was least deserving, when I couldn't pay my debt, he paid it in full. And he did more than pay my debt. He brought me into his home and made me a part of the family, and he reserved a place at the table for me. It has my name on it. And out of that, out of that grace and the love that I received, how could I not serve him? And the Christian says, I want more of him. I want to know him more, and I want to serve him faithfully till the day I die or till he returns. So may we commit to that. Let's stand as we take communion.